0: Lock talk radio. Can e Verify solve the immigration problem? Should we rely on it? And does it work? And are corporations people with free speech rights? And can they squash the rights of real people? What does Citizens United have to do with all of this? Well, it's all here today on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, I'm in California. I'm co hosting with my friend and colleague Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. We are broadcasting Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on the Cyber Station USA network, the Blog Talk Radio network, and our radio affiliates. It's March 1st, the day after leap year 2012, and we are pushing the boundaries of radio, listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. Well, let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck.
1: How are you, Patrick?
0: I'm pretty good. I'm I'm very good, as a matter of fact. Um, Obviously, there were a couple of uh, sad notes in the newspaper today. Uh, Even though I didn't like his work, I appreciate uh, the fact that he was a media entrepreneur. Andrew Breitbart died. uh, uh, This, I guess, yesterday afternoon, while he was walking in front of his house, he had a heart attack.
1: Right. Um, I, you know, I hate to put on my tin hat here, Patrick, and I'm sure that. The situation was natural causes, but you do have to wonder if maybe he wasn't wasn't um, murdered. I don't know.
0: Well, I think <laughs> well he he lives up the road from me, so I know his neighborhood, and it's 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 not the kind of neighborhood that you're going to find murderers in. Believe me, it's it's uh, um, pretty safe. Uh, actually, he had heart troubles last year. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah, he did. And then the other loss uh, is um, Davy Jones of the Munster. I
1: know, terribly sad.
0: Yeah, that's uh, too bad. So Father
1: of four daughters. Yeah. Um,
0: yep, great and, band. And, um, well, th- another piece of news in Los Angeles is that um, uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art has uh, authorized uh, an installation which involves a 340-ton rock. Which is being moved from a quarry in Riverside to uh, Midtown Los Angeles, and it's being uh, moved on a trailer with 178 wheels that is uh, the width of two freeway lanes, and it's kind of this rolling roadblock through Los Angeles that's going on, followed by every television camera available. So we're all watching that.
1: What's the uh, importance of the rock?
0: Uh, they've uh, commissioned an artist, uh, actually a private donor has commissioned an artist to do a carving um, of with using the rock as the base at the museum. It's going to be set up outside, obviously, and uh, so they have to get the, the, the rock there. Kind of like a mini Mount
1: Rushmore, or, or is it going to be like a... Um... Kind of a, a public monument of some sort. Uh,
0: I I don't know. They haven't really shown us. They've kind of kept what the final installation is going to look like uh, under wraps. But we will see. I I would suspect it's more like a mini Mount Rushmore. Although it'll probably won't be faces on it. So right. We're going to see. But uh, the the uh, the rolling roadblock through uh, Los Angeles is. It's um, a, a, a frustrating for some people and interesting for lots of others, as uh, you you can imagine. Oh,
1: that's hilarious.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, we saw that um, a U.S. senator just north of you has said she's not going to run again. i let you know.
1: Well, I know she technically was a Republican, but she was very liberal, and she has a uh, a Tea Party guy who's running up there who I think is
0: getting some traction. Well, we shall see. Of course, uh, uh, for you to say she's liberal, everybody else says she was moderate. Um, Well, (laughs)
1: liberal in terms of her voting record of voting with the Democrats. uh, Very occasionally. More than occasionally. I think it was very high. Uh, she voted for a lot of big spending bills. I mean, she generally would would side with um, the Democratic side of the House more more times than not. I'm not saying she was as liberal as, um, as the Democrats, but um, a very liberal Republican. Um, I think that – I don't have a lot of information on it, but my understanding is that there's a more conservative Republican running who's doing pretty well in the polls and uh, – that That's what's going on there.
0: Well, we we shall see on that, but it did throw a little bit of a crimp into Republican plans to take over the Senate. In fact, the, the head of the Republican Senate committee said uh, uh, yesterday that it's by no means a slam dunk, that uh, even though there are more Democratic seats open than Republican seats, when you get down to looking at them on a state-by-state basis, there's really only three Democratic seats in play. And uh, there are a couple of Republican seats in play, too, so they're not for sure at all. And this is coming out of the RNC.
1: Well, I'm glad that they're being very um, modest about it and very sort of um, underdog-ish, if you will, about that, as opposed to the Democratic Committee, which has declared that the House is going to be going Democratic, definitely.
0: Yeah, I
1: know. And, and again, I I mentioned yesterday Dickie Morris. I know he used to be on your side. Now he's on our side. Good uh, political analyst has gone state by state analyzing the races, and he says that the Republicans are going to pick up at least six, if not ten seats this coming election. And he also – and he doesn't include
0: in that In Scott which – the House? I mean in the Senate. In the – ten seats in the Senate? Lucky. Yeah.
1: Okay. And he does not include Scott Brown because he says, you know, in Massachusetts you can never tell. Although Scott is doing well now. So, you know, who knows? I mean, we'll, we'll see. It's all going to shake out in coming months
0: and all all those predictions at this point are a spin and b will change daily for the next uh nine months or so yeah, i agree as, as we as we both know yep um but uh we we will we'll keep an eye on it i'd I'd love to be able to talk to some of these candidates, although it's uh not always uh easy as as you know
1: patrick, I want to ask you uh yeah. what you think of this, and again, I haven't had a chance to look at it today, but um uh, congressional testimony by the Secretary of Energy, where he said that the administration is not in any way disturbed or opposed to the raising of gas prices.
0: I didn't see the um, the testimony. Right, so. right, the New York Times. Uh, well, I, I, I've had a lot of things to do this morning, and they didn't include <laughs> reading all the New York Times. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, basically uh, – uh,
1: the, the comment was was based upon some conjecture, and again, I don't have in front of me that you know the, the European gas prices are seven dollars a gallon. So you know, wh- why should waters be so low and and this sort of talk?
0: Well, again, without seeing it, I should point out that gasoline prices go do go up and down, and right. so, and uh, we did see Ben Bernanke yesterday uh, predict that the gasoline prices are not going to affect the economy over the next year so I, I can't really say, and of course, the president really has has very little to do with gasoline prices what we What he could do is, and he said he might is uh release the um uh, the oil reserves we have, although because the oil companies have restricted refinery capacity, they 've shut down two refineries in in uh, Texas, and of course, there was the fire at the Cherry Hill refinery in Oregon. Uh, Even if there was more oil available, that doesn't mean there's going to be more gasoline because they're artificially restricting the amount of gasoline available. And we also see that demand for gasoline has actually gone down this year. So when we're seeing more oil being produced but less gasoline being produced and less demand, you know that there is some market manipulation going on that is beyond anything the president or the Congress could do.
1: Well, I'm talking about congressional testimony that – uh, shows an attitude with regard to the raising of gas prices. That's all. I'm not saying how it's going to affect the economy, although it's certainly going to hurt people. It may not affect the economy, but it's going to affect the guy you know, pumping at the gas tank. It's going to affect the price of things. Well, and uh, I mean that is if gas goes up, and and it it, it's just uh, it it shows a certain approach to the issue. That's all. The idea being that uh, that you know, the uh, if gas prices go up, then it's going to force the country to move toward alternative energies, which may be. But I don't see why we can't move toward alternative energies and keep the gas price down.
0: Well, there's a very good reason why. Um, well, first of all, alternative energies have very little to do with gasoline. Uh, right. uh, alternative energies are production of electricity. Gasoline, of course, is, it goes in automobiles and trucks, so the, the two are really are, are really separate. What it does happen is if gasoline prices go up, it makes uh, it, it makes electric cars or hybrid cars more uh, more desirable. And what is desirable right now is we have to welcome in our radio listeners. We have to take a break to do that. Okay. Okay. And I just want we don't have to actually go for a break. We can just say that I'm Patrick O'Heffernan welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. And don't forget, Tampa Bay is going to be the home of the uh, Republican National Convention this year. I'd love to be able to, to, do, to go to that one. And KSKQ-FM in Ashland is the home of a great Shakespeare Festival, which I do like to go to. I'm co-hosting today's edition of the Fairness Doctrine from Los Angeles. We've got Chuck Morse in Boston as a co-host today, as my co-host today. You can join us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. That's email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com if you want to call, 424-675-6806. Please, for our Blog Talk listeners, keep in mind that we are broadcast on terrestrial radio stations We do have to follow the FCC regulations about the seven words you can't say on the air, so don't say them if you call in. Um, And after the show, don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com. And I want to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Barton Publishing, that's www.bartonpublishing.com. We'll talk a little bit more about Barton Publishing's uh, products in the next ad, but if you do go to Barton Publishing's uh, website and you order, don't forget to use the order code, the coupon code FAIRNESS. That'll get you a nice little discount. Well, Chuck, we're talking about gasoline prices. Um, I would like to, to see that um, that testimony. Um, I'm
1: looking at it right now, Patrick, Okay. Plethora of websites that, that are quoting it. It was Secretary of Energy Chu saying that the administration wants to keep gas prices high. I know it sounds unbelievable. Yeah. I can't believe that they, would, you know, that, that that they would say that. I mean, even if it were true, but this came out. It was one of these sort of little quick comments during a, a routine uh, uh, congressional hearing uh, in which Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu made this comment and I'm here I'm, I'm looking at it right now I see about 12 different websites it's talking about do they have the actual text of the comments that's what I'm trying to find out yeah. I should have done this before Patrick but here I am you know I didn't do my homework <laughs> um, I would uh, just mention to people that they can just go online and put in White House wants to keep gas prices high and they'll get about um, uh, I, I see several pages on Google of articles that have been published in various newspapers with this congressional testimony, I just have to we, – today we're not taking breaks, so I'm, I'm having trouble reading it and and talking to you at the same time. Yeah, well – um, uh, But I well. think that it's – here's a good one. Canada Free Press. That's a pretty, I think, objective site. Right. White House wants to keep gas prices high with the national average of gas prices hitting 3.65 a gallon, nearing $6 in some parts of the country and poised to head even higher – American families are wondering when the bleeding in the pump will stop. But for Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu, these steep prices aren't even a concern. In fact, he says his goal is not to get the price of gasoline to go down. Chu delivered those stunning remarks and testimony before Congress yesterday when Representative Alan Nunnally, Republican of Minnesota, asked Chu whether it's his overall goal to get our price of gasoline lower. Chu said No. The overall goal is to decrease our dependency on oil to build and strengthen our economy. As shocking as this re- these remarks, his remarks are, they shouldn't come as a surprise. Chu has a long record of advocating for higher gas prices. In 2008, he stated, quote, Somehow we have to figure out how to boost the price of gasoline to the levels of Europe, unquote. Last March, he reiterated his point in an interview with Fox News Chris Wallace, noting that the focus is to ease the pain felt by his energy policies by forcing automakers to make more fuel efficient automobiles. What I'm doing since I became Secretary of Energy has been quite clear. What I have been doing is developing methods to take the pain out of high gas prices. So yeah.
0: Okay. Um well that's what he said. We'll we'll wait and see if the White House um corrects him on that. I have a feeling that that they might because they uh uh the the, uh, the president gave a speech yesterday in which he did not say that very much. Right, uh, right. Um so we shall see if there's a correction on that. But yeah, uh, I I understand what what Chu's getting at there and um I think it's outrageous. Well, I, again, uh you could say it's outrageous uh what what we, we, we have to realize, though, the facts are that the administration has almost no control over, over what gasoline costs. That's up to the oil company. I don't
1: know if I believe that, Patrick.
0: Well, te- you know, I know would you explain I, how they could?
1: Because, for example, how come it is then that in some parts of the country, even regionally or even statewide, gas prices are very different than in other parts of the country?
0: Oh, that's easy because different states have different taxes on gas. In California, we have a that's 55-cent right. tax on every gallon of gas. In Texas, they have zero. So you're saying that that's only because of state of of gas tax? That's one reason. Another reason is is because refineries are concentrated in certain parts of the country, and you have to pay transportation costs to other parts of the country.
1: Well, that tells you that that the price of gas can be regulated by production domestically.
0: But who's going to, But the oil companies regulate the production.
1: Yeah, but this, has the government done anything to encourage uh, domestic production
0: At, uh, of what? Oil or gasoline? Uh, well, I mean, of, e- of either actually. Well, yes. It, it, as I said last week. We now have more drilling rigs working in the United States than in the entire world. We've released more public lands for drilling than ever in history, and we are producing more oil every day, 2.8 million gallons, barrels of oil a day than we have since 2008. This administration has pumped up the production of oil. However, the oil companies have cut back on the production of gasoline, and they are now shipping gasoline to other countries, and they're shipping oil to other countries. Oh, well, can't the administration do something about that? Well, not without ins- installing a socialist regime, which, of course, this administration yeah. is never going to do.
1: I don't think it's a matter of socialist regimes. I mean, I, I do, you know, and I don't know if, you know, I, we'd have to take a look into exactly what it is that the government can and can't do to affect the price of gas. But I do remember that in 2008, this, that summer when the price of gas went way up, there was a lot of, con- uh, of accusations against Bush and Cheney about the raise of, of uh, gas prices. Mm-hmm. The oil men in the White House, remember that? Yep, yep. I mean, why is it that they somehow had something to do with that? And, and yet now that the gas prices are ga- again going up, well, we would, instead you're pointing fingers at, I don't know, Bush and Cheney again. No, actually I'm not uh, at, the, at the, oil the oil industry oil and
0: men. Uh, speculators. But right now I'm pointing fingers to the clock, which says we have to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to have our first guest with us. We're going to talk about immigration, All right. stay tuned. Uh, this is uh, fairness radio calling to interview Roy Beck.
2: Yes, just a moment, please.
0: Uh, hold on, Roy. This is uh, Patrick O'Hernan. We'll be right back. Very here. good. And we are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Don't forget, you can be part of the program. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can also call us, 424-675-6806. And for our Blog Talk listeners, remember we are heard on terrestrial radio stations, so don't say any of the seven words you wouldn't want to hear your your mother say on the radio. Okay, that will keep us out of trouble. Well, immigration has been a hot topic during the Republican primary. And it seems like the candidates are just trying to outdo each other with claims of how they're going to control the border with moats and alligators, that was Herman Cain, or get them to self-deport, that was Mitt Romney, and, and other things. But other than turning off potential Latino voters to the Republican Party, few, if any, sensible proposals for the managing of immigration have been made. One of those, however, is E-Verify, an electronic system used by the government to verify the citizenship of workers. But E-Verify is not perfect, and it does have its critics. Here to discuss E-Verify, immigration, and the Republican primary, and other immigration issues, is Roy Beck, president of Numbers USA. Roy, welcome to Fairness Radio.
3: Hey, good afternoon.
0: Uh, Quickly, Roy, could you tell us what Numbers USA is?
3: We started Numbers USA back in 1996, uh, to carry out or to help carry out the immigration recommendations of two national commissions. One of them was a bipartisan commission headed up by Barbara Jordan, uh, who many of your listeners may remember. And uh, the second one was uh, a commission appointed by President Clinton uh, to look at the issue of sustainability, especially sustainable development. Both commissions recommended ways to stop illegal immigration, and also recommended deep cuts in legal immigration in order to protect the most economically vulnerable Americans. And uh, I would just say from that, and, and by the way, what we do is we, we work online. We have over a million opted-in online members who use our free online tools to lobby their members of Congress and their state legislatures uh, for legislation to carry out those recommendations. And then I just say that to tie into your, your topic today, what Barbara Jordan's com, uh, bipartisan commission recommended back in 1996 was the number one way to end illegal immigration is to take away the jobs magnet and to set up a national electronic verification system that was, that was mandatory for every employer. And that is exactly what the legislation in Congress would do, and it's what three of the four Republican presidential candidates uh, have endorsed.
0: Uh, Well, just so our listeners understand where you're coming from, um, uh, Numbers USA does take positions that are controversial, like opposing citizenship for people born in the USA of non-citizen parents, and aid to local police to enforce state immigration papers, please laws, as they're uh, uh, called, and you also oppose a a path to citizenship. Uh, Now, can you tell us about E-Verify? What is it, how does it work, and does it work?
3: Yeah. Um you know, start off with the fact that uh every government program has these uh uh surveys to see whether you know people feel like the uh, the government program works and uh, uh the businesses that use everify give, E-ver- give everify give the highest confidence rating of any government program so it's it's been in pl- place since 1996 uh, there are over 300,000 businesses who use it. It's used in over a million workplaces and as I say uh, the businesses lo- that use it love it. Now, how does it work? All businesses since 1986 have been required to uh, get gather information and to basically assure that the people that they're hiring are legally allowed to work in the United States, but until E-Verify, it was all done on paper, and uh, and most businesses still do it on paper. And you basically have to ask for a person's name, their birth date, birthplace, social security number. There's a few things like that. But when you're doing it on paper, you just fill it out and you send it into the government, and it goes into it's, it's spot checked. Some things are checked, you know, but most of them never get looked at. They're put in boxes. They're put in caves uh, somewhere in Missouri. But with with the electronic version, the stuff gets typed in and sent over a a secure line into the Social Security Administration, and usually within about 30 seconds, the Social Security Administration can tell the business owner, yes, this person is authorized to work, um, and they're fine. Uh, you, You type this stuff in after you've hired a person. Now, with a very tiny percentage, of of native-born Americans, uh, you'll get a tentative non-confirmation. With a significantly higher percentage of people who are immigrants, you'll get a tentative non-confirmation. What it says is, you must keep this person on your payroll. This person, you cannot fire this person because of this tentative non-confirmation. This person has 10 days to get things worked out. And it's just print this sheet of paper. It will tell the person what to do. Usually, I mean, we've done this. We've hired a couple of immigrants who, it turned out, there was there was some data wrong in the government database. Uh, and uh, uh, what they did is they called in and they worked through it and they got it straightened out. And within a day, uh, they had we've gotten a full confirmation for them we've had a couple of women who um, actually had formerly worked for the department of homeland security <laughs> and we hired them and they got tentative non confirmations and it was because they had gotten married and never notified the social security administration of their name change they got that change within a few hours um, so this is how it works you get and, and what happens is is that generally if a person is an illegal alien once they get that tentative non-confirmation, they don't show up for work the next day. But if they do and they aren't and they don't straighten things out after 10 days, the business is required to fire that person and hire uh, an American. And uh, so this is uh, you know, most people say that, that of the 7 million illegal aliens that are working in manufacturing, construction, service, transportation, that most of them would lose their job jobs over a Three, four, five year period, all those jobs are then to be available to unemployed Americans.
0: So you're saying that there are seven million uh, um, undocumented workers currently employed in the United States.
3: That's according to the Pew Hispanic Research Center, and okay. other other estimates are very similar. And it's okay. it's you know it. You know some people will say, "Oh, there's there's lots more than that," but uh, that's the, the government says there're probably about 11 million people in this con- country who uh, are not authorized to be here, and okay. and Pew says of that, about seven million of them are holding U.S. jobs.
0: Okay, all right. Um, I, I um, w- wish I could uh, be one of the the people who get their names straightened out within a, a few hours or even 10 days because uh, social security made an error in data entry in my name uh 35 years ago and we're still trying to correct it. So I don't you know something I don't know there. <laughs>
3: Well, that is that is a headache. And you know, one thing one thing about that is that of course this system is is does not create any new database. It only uses the social security database for native born Americans and the Department of Homeland Security database for immigrants. So if there's a problem in the system, the problem already exists. And uh, one thing, as you probably found out, it's at least good to know that the error is there so you can try to correct it.
0: Oh, I I find out about it every year when I file my taxes. Uh, Let me me ask you a little bit more about this. Now, currently, E-Verify is not mandatory.
3: Is that correct? Uh, It is. Well, it is it is it is mandatory in some circumstances. President Barack Obama did a wonderful thing uh, in the fall of his first year. Uh, he signed an executive order that mandates every government contractor has to use eVerify uh, on their employees. And so that, because of that, about 12% of all new hires in America now go through eVerify just through government contractors, and then there's about another 12% that have voluntarily on their own. Also, you have five states that mandate it for every employer, and you have another 10 states that mandate it for their state and local uh, workers and state contractors. But the fact is is that uh, you know, 75% of the employees are still being hired without using E-Verify because there's not a, a national mandate.
0: Well, I, I know that there's a bill now to to make it, uh, it to make it national, and I know yes. you all are supporting that bill, but there is some criticism of it. Uh, yes, and one of them, as you pointed out, it's it's not perfect. Uh, I I have read uh, reports that it's uh, anywhere between ninety two and ninety seven percent perfect, which is not bad for a government program or any program for that matter. Um, but there's also the, uh, the The criticism that, as you said, it would endanger the jobs of millions of Latinos, uh, some of whom are U.S. citizens, but uh, many of whom are not, um, and would lead not to the hiring of Americans because those Latinos work in jobs that Americans have consistently refused to work in, but would actually uh, enable employers to import hundreds of thousands of new guest workers to uh, replace them and allow them to... uh, pay those guest workers less than minimum wage and to use other uh, – take advantage of them in other ways. So this, so that, those are the criticisms I see out there. Now, mm-hmm. what, um, mm-hmm. what do you have to say to those criticisms?
3: Right. No, I mean, those are all out there. Uh, I mean, first thing we need to get off the table is agriculture. People tend to think of agriculture when they think of illegal aliens. Uh, less than 5% of the people in this country who are working illegally work in agriculture. So, you know, it's, it's that that's an important thing to know. When it comes to agriculture, uh uh we believe that that the allowance of illegal workforce has driven down wages, driven down working conditions. But, and it's also driven a lot of people out, a lot of families, a lot of communities out of the, the, the work. So that right now, if we were to go, try to go to a totally legal agricultural workforce, I do agree with people who think that we wouldn't find enough Americans to do it. And that's why we, we support the fact right now we currently have an unlimited guest worker program for agriculture. Uh, if everybody came in through the guest worker program, the pay would actually go up. Uh, one of the reasons why farmers, growers, especially out in the West, don't use the legal system is because it requires them to pay higher wages than they want to pay. But outside of agriculture, the Labor Department keeps statistics on about 450 occupations, and they find that there are only two of those 450 do Americans not fill, native-born Americans, not fill the the majority of the work slots, and that's, that's field work, and uh, fingernail painting. But on every other kind of thing, if you see illegal aliens working that, it's not because there aren't Americans to do it. It's because, usually because the, the wages have collapsed, the working conditions have collapsed, uh, and what we find is that right now, during this, un- this unemployment dis- disaster we've been in for the last four years, actually, you don't even have to raise wages. When, when the, the Obama administration does audits, Paper audits on companies and discovers large numbers of illegal aliens and forces the company to fire them. It doesn't matter if the company is uh, uh, does janitorial work, meat packing, uh, fast food, construction drywalling, roofing, it doesn't matter what it is, those companies are able immediately to have long lines of Americans to fill those jobs. And so it really isn't a case that Americans won't do these jobs. Now, if the, if the economy gets a little better, it's true some of these places may have to pay higher wages. Well, and I think finally on this thing about on, on errors, that, that 92 to 97 is a little misleading um, because it includes it includes the errors that are actually in the database, which I'm talking about tentative non-confirmations. People well, don't lose it, it their jobs it, because it, of those errors.
0: It doesn't matter whether they're in the database or not if there are errors. There are errors. And um, Representative Zoe Lofton of California disagrees with you. She pointed out there have been government audits of e-verified programs that suggests that 770,000 Americans, legitimate Americans, would lose their jobs because the system would mistakenly identify them as being unauthorized to work. And Los Angeles County, where I live, we had an audit here in 2009 that found that 95% of county employees flagged as being potentially unauthorized were actually legal immigrants or American citizens. So that's called to me, that calls into question uh the efficacy of the system. I'm not yeah. against the system. I think that employers should yeah. should identify no, but I, this, but I'm I'm not sure that this is that we're ready yet to make this mandatory. <laughs>
3: But see, it's not happening. It's not happening in reality. I mean, but Loughran, I'm familiar with what she's talking about. But she's not talking about. She's not talking about a. a there's not been a government study that said people would lose their jobs. What it says is that there are that many people who would get tentative non confirmations. She makes the leap that they would lose their jobs, but they would only lose their jobs if they did not correct the the, the uh, data in 10 days. Um, there's there is no there's no, there's been no experience out of you know out of these 1 million workplaces that shows that there's any kind of an issue on this it's, i mean yes okay. there are lots All of right. errors in the that, databases but they don't well lose taken. their jobs point well taken. let yeah. me
0: introduce my, my co-host uh, chuck morris
1: thank you patrick thanks for joining us roy um the um I, my my concern again is sort of where patrick is is discussing this which is how accurate can this information be, and how easy is it for someone to correct a problem? I mean, I know that certainly when you're a driver in Massachusetts, the police have a record immediately of every single driving and speeding and parking infraction you've ever had because the government has an interest in doing that. They get money for it. But um, so I think that there must be a way to get to something that seems to me to be a lot easier and a lot more basic in terms of gathering records, which is whether or not someone's a legal citizen or not um I can't imagine this being a major problem with, with in our computer age No,
3: uh, it, 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 to be it's, very it's not and, and and it isn't it isn't a problem i mean it's the uh, i mean this is the easiest way i mean it's it, that's why the businesses love it it is so easy and right. and it's why there's no record of of, of people losing their jobs uh and, and the uh One thing I think to be aware of is that in this sense it's bipartisan. The Obama administration says that it is ready to handle any volume. That would come at it. It is also the Obama administration is out there advertising across the country, encouraging more people to voluntarily uh, use the system. So, so this is a this is a situation in which both parties have great confidence. And I shouldn't say not everybody. Obviously, Zoe Lofgren, as you quoted, I know she does. She's she's got a powerful post on the uh, Judiciary Committee. But the Obama administration has tremendous. Uh, confidence in it, and it's the one that is administering it. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, uh, I also think that in Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Governor Deval Patrick is against this. Um, Either this or there was another program with regard to identifying (laughs) illegal aliens that he came out against in disagreement with the Obama administration. What is the motivation of those? It seems to me this is a common sense idea. Uh, you know, it goes after both the big co- companies that try to hire illegal people and undercut American workers, and and make a quick buck off people. And we don't have a chance to check their working conditions. And you know, there's all these other problems involved. So, so what is the um, what is the nature of the opposition to this? Putting aside the question of the the accuracy and the efficacy of the um, the system.
3: Well, and it's a good question to ask. Public, the Pulse Opinion Research just did a poll two weeks ago, and found that that 78% of Americans favor mandatory E-Verify. Only 12% oppose it. It's it's and it's uh it is true that conservatives and Republicans favor it by a higher percentage. But even among Democrats with an opinion, it's 81% in favor, 19% opposed. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all across the line. The reason that it that it is not happened yet is there are about three or four major ones. One of them is, if you represent businesses that that intend to hire illegal aliens in order to undercut wages, you're against it, and and a lot of those put a lot of money into into places to fight it. I don't think that's what Patrick is doing. Another one is if you are an organization that represents uh, people who are unauthorized to be in the United States. A lot of a lot of these. Uh, rights groups will fight it, mainly just because they do not want, uh, they do not want uh, illegal immigration. They don't want people who are here illegally to, to leave, and they don't really want to stop illegal immigration. Another thing is uh, the, the, re- the main reason this is not moving is the Republican leadership in the House, Boehner of Ohio, Canner of Virginia, McCarthy of California. The three, those three Republican leaders in the House refuse to move the bill that's already passed the Judiciary Committee. It would pass the House in a, I mean, overwhelmingly bipartisan. But they won't bring it up because, for one thing, there is a small group of businesses that, that want to hold the option for being able to hire illegals. But the other part is they've been convinced that if they come out against this, that Hispanic activist groups will make such a big noise about it that it will hurt them in the elections in the fall. So even though this would put millions of Americans, unemployed Americans back to work, the House Republican leadership absolutely refuses to bring this to the floor for purely for political reasons.
1: Now why is the um Hispanic I mean is the Hispanic community generally standing against this? I mean I think that most um, Hispanic Americans are here legally and um you know would not not support this so what is what is there what does there be well
3: well, that's why I said the hispanic activist organizations they're the ones that fight it now uh, uh, the polling that was done two weeks ago found that there was a narrow majority of Hispanic voters uh who favor mandatory e verify now uh his, because Hispanic voters are more likely than other voters to have. Uh, friends or relatives who are immigrants and who are unauthorized. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a tension, uh, as there is in any kind of an immigrant community, which is that there's a tension between what is best for them economically, and also. Their natural desires to see others of their fellow countrymen. I mean, Hispanics basically are not Hispanic Americans are not looking for more Hispanics. But if you're from Bolivia, you tend to like to see more Bolivians come in, and if if you're from Brazil, more Brazilians, etc. But the right. thing is, is, the thing is that Hispanic Americans actually are the ones who are hurt the most economically and unemployment by illegal immigration. They are the ones who would benefit the most. And I agree with you that that. That it's 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 wrong to think that Hispanic voters uh, are somehow or another overwhelmingly in favor of illegality, and that's what this poll found was that uh, that a majority, not a big majority, but a majority of Hispanic voters uh, say they would like mandatory verify.
1: You know, I, I would think so, and also this argument that. Um, And it was an argument that was made by George Bush, who didn't do a damn thing about stopping illegal immigration. I think Obama's actually been better on that issue than Bush. But uh, this this idea that there are these jobs that, um, you know, Americans don't want to do, I I think that we've already stated that that may be true or it is true within the agricultural uh, industry. But uh, these other jobs it seems like you're, you know you've brought some interesting light on this issue Roy in that uh, Americans would want to do these jobs and especially those who are on welfare they should be doing these jobs you know to well, pay
0: people not to work uh, I'll to take a quick break here uh, Roy can no. you stay for uh, a minute or two after, after you bet. the break okay yeah. hold on a second we're going to take a quick break <laughs> Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're broadcasting on the Blog Talk radio system, the Cyber Station USA system, and on our terrestrial radio affiliates. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail you can call us four two four six seven five sixty eight oh six if you do call us, remember that we are heard on terrestrial radio that's radio stations so you can't say any of those words you wouldn't want your mother to to hear on the air We're ta- we're we're discussing immigration and we're discussing the e verify system and uh we've got lots of questions about that uh we actually got we we got an email uh from a a, a listener Roy. Uh, and the emailer points out that there was a piece in the, um, and I haven't seen it, but a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday which said that conservative and Tea Party and libertarian groups uh, have joined with liberals and uh, Latino and immigration groups to fight this bill. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, the emailer also points out that uh, this would create a national ID system which is anathema to. Uh, conservatives and uh, the Tea Party. What do you have to say about that?
3: Yeah, actually I I missed that story, but it is true I that was that was one more group that I should have mentioned a while ago is that, that the uh, I would say the radical libertarians uh, uh, on the right, uh, also oppose this. It's not a very large uh, segment, and it's found in the poll. Uh, I mean, there are only only about seven percent of people who call themselves very conservative oppose verify. This thing about a national data, uh, you know, ID card is it's just it's just false information. There's nothing in in the bills in the House and the Senate. Uh, that creates a national ID card. It does not create a new national uh, database. It only uses the databases that have been in place for years and years. Uh, there are there are there's no question that as, as I hope as I indicated a while ago, the opposition, as small as it is, it's very loud and it comes from parts of the left and it comes from parts of the right, mainly the libertarian right. That's the reason Ron Paul does not Ron uh, the presidential candidate Ron Paul is against. Uh, using E-Verify. Uh, the, uh, t- uh Gingrich and uh, uh, Romney and Santorum all are uh, are in favor of mandatory verify. In fact, as Romney made that his key thing, he talked about it in the Arizona debate, and I think it was one of the reasons why he did so well in Arizona.
0: I right, uh and maybe Chuck can weigh in on this. Uh, the emailer also points out that this is a cost for business, and business organizations
3: are opposed to it too.
0: Uh, well, definitely. no. It's, I
3: mean, the, the, the business organizations aren't opposed. To it. The National Chamber of Commerce has endorsed the House bill. The National Chamber of Commerce. The National Association of Restaurants has endorsed it. The. Um, the National Association of Home Builders has endorsed it. Yes, there are some small organizations of, of businesses that have opposed it, but the, the, the most of the large national organizations, National Association of Manufacturers, um, businesses, this is the thing, businesses who want to be good citizens and also want to level the competitive playing field um, – they love they love eVerify, and it's not. I mean, if it were, if it really were an onerous cost of business, these businesses would not love it. But they do because it's almost no cost at all. Chuck,
1: no, there's uh, businesses will also, I think, find a way around this. In that a lot of businesses that hire illegal aliens, they they subcontract to, you know, sort of inside businesses who then hire people and bring people in. I'm saying this because I know of a situation like this. And uh, <laughs> you know, here's you know, there, there here, two here's two ways the ways to get around. I
3: mean, I think you're right. You're right about that, but it is but here's the deal. Yeah. Basically, to the extent that businesses break the tax laws, you will have businesses breaking this law. But you won't but businesses that aren't willing to break tax laws are unlikely to do this because it's all tied in once once you are withholding social security taxes on an employee, then the Social Security administration knows you have that employee and they will know if you've run that employee through everify and that's what's so beautiful about this system it 's all tied in to the fact of, that you that the government already knows this information.
1: Right. No, I, I can see where it will tighten that practice up. But, of course, it's not going to be flawless.
3: There will However, always be centers. <laughs>
1: oh, sure. And and it's certainly something that's going to improve the job market for Americans, as you say. And it would discourage illegal immigration. So, you know, in that sense, I think it's very good.
3: It's, um, you know, what we've found in the states that have required it is that it has, I mean, for instance, in Alabama, um, they've had a, a, a faster reduction in their unemployment rate than the nation as a whole. Now, there there are always more than one cat, one uh, ingredient on these things, but but one thing for sure is that when you when you move illegal aliens out of jobs and and uh, those jobs that those jobs are going to get done, you have to move legal workers into them. And and frankly. You know, our our view here, and it was Barbara Jordan's view, was that if a job is essential to the economy, if a job is something that people think needs to be done, then the worker doing that job ought to be paid a wage that allows that person to raise a family in dignity. Uh, and and you know, a lot of us would say you ought to be able to buy a home. It may be a modest place, but they ought to be able to buy a home. Over the last thirty years, we had this huge uh, uh, increase in income disparity. Which has been a lot of it has been caused by the fact that wages for the lower skilled workers has has dropped so much. There's no reason for our government to allow the low skilled labor market to be engorged with illegal workers.
1: Now, I would think that the unions would be behind this. I mean, that's particularly the SEIU. What is their position on it?
3: <clears throat> the trouble is the SEIU has so many illegal workers in their unions <clears throat> that their loyalties are. Are pretty uh, uh, split. Excuse me. Um, the unions, the AFL-CIO, up until 2000, fought very hard for the same kind of thing that we're, you know, we're, we're talking about. You verify. What happened was that the, after '86, when the unions helped push through making it finally illegal for a business to hire an illegal worker, the government dropped their promise the government never really enforced that law mm-hmm. so the unions were faced with the situation that the government allowed the businesses to wink and nod and and fill their workforce with their illegal workers uh and uh, and at that point they said you know it'd be a lot easier for us to organize if the workers were not looking over their shoulders. So in 2000, they changed positions. I think they were wrong. I think there's a wrong decision. But, you know, from a business standpoint, you know, their their mission may be to help workers, but their business is union dues. And uh, foreign-born workers are the only place where unions have had any kind of growth in their membership. Uh, so uh, the, the unions either, like the SEIU, lobbies very hard for uh, illegal workers and uh, works against E-Verify. Many of the other unions, especially things like Carpenter, some of the old old skills unions, have kind of taken a sideline, but when you talk to their members, especially some of their local uh, leaders, uh, we've we've got a lot of them in our membership.
0: Well, we are um, out of time, and we're actually going to have a representative of SEIU on in in a week or two, and I'm going to ask them about your assertion that they lobby for illegal workers, just to see what they say about that. But we're great. out of time, uh, and I want to thank you, Roy, for being with us. Thank you, Roy. It's uh, great to
3: be with you. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Uh, Roy Beck, president of Numbers USA, and you can learn more about Numbers USA at www.numbersusa.com. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. And we're back you're listening to fairness radio with Chuck and Patrick on the blog talk radio network the cyber station u s a network and our ne- our radio affiliates <coughs> excuse me and we're doing it through my horse voice uh, we um uh, we want to remind you that uh this you can call in you at four two four Six seven five sixty eight zero six. Remember, we are heard on on land based radio stations, so you don't use words that you wouldn't want your mother to hear you say on on the radio. Uh, You can also email us uh, fairnessradio at gmail dot com. And also, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Barton Publishing. Barton Publishing is your source of information to manage your health, your body without resorting to expensive and dangerous drugs that you get from Big Pharma or those expensive drug stores. You can uh, find out more about Barton Publishing and also order books and information on how to manage your health at www.bartonpublishing.com. And when you do order from Barton Publishing, remember the coupon code FAIRNESS, just FAIRNESS, F-A-I-R-N-E-S-S, and that will get you a discount. That's Barton publishing www.bartonpublishing.com your source for information on how to manage your health without resorting to expensive and toxic drugs well chuck that was a a, a very interesting conversation you know i don't think anybody can say they they want to uh, encourage illegal immigration or the hiring of illegal immigrants it just seems to be more does this work and what are the unintended consequences i don't know what do you think
1: well, I think there are people who do say that, Patrick. And as uh, Roy, Blunt's, uh, Roy Beck said, I mean, they're both on the on the right and the left. You know, uh, I suppose you could conventionally say on the right, even though they're probably liberals, but, you know, and could be conservative, but certain big businesses, I even know of one, frankly. A big uh,
0: business?
1: Yeah. Well, not big business, but, you know, not maybe a, a, a mid-sized business that's, in, okay. that, that's labor-intensive. And that's involved in that it needs to hire a lot of uh, cheap labor. They they, uh, they have illegal aliens working for them, you know. But but they do it by um, basically subcontracting out to another company, which then brings in employees. Yeah. I mean, another example. That's a, I, I mean, I'm going to mention the name here because I well, maybe I shouldn't mention the name. Probably not. But yeah. uh, there is a company, a national company, that hires day workers. You know, hmm. I mean, and uh, you you can call them up. And you say I need three workers to do this job, and they can give they they put the workers out there and bring them in. I've done some business with them in the past.
0: Uh, do, do they claim that the workers that they send you are legal? No, but uh, I happen to know that uh,
1: they may not be. I mean, there, there's it's not uh, obviously a part of their policy, but uh, anybody can show up at one of their offices and uh, sign a piece of paper, and they they put them out in the labor.
0: Sure, and of course, as we know. Um phony social security cards are uh, not hard to obtain right and uh that that really doesn't hurt the social security system in fact it actually gives it some uh, some additional money but uh it that, and that's another thing about everify uh apparently it will run the name on the social security card against the number and if the two don't match it'll come back with a um um a a notice that says you need to further check in within 10 days but as you very rightly point out, this doesn't do anything about the employer who just doesn't check. Even if it's mandatory, if they're not checking now, they're probably not going to be checking even after if such a large.
1: And then Patrick, I think that um, Roy made the point that a group like the SCIU actually benefits financially from um, you know illegal aliens as members because they get dues. Uh, you know, so there's a certain you know incentive there. But uh, there's also, as much as businesses, there's groups on the far left that obviously don't want this. The National Lawyers Guild, the the the, um, the American Civil Liberties Union. I wouldn't say they're on the far left, but they're on the left, and, and other groups that feel that uh, this, you know, that they want to protect the rights of uh, so-called undocumented uh, workers.
0: Well, I, um, I'm looking at a, a quote right now at, that uh, says it's from. Um uh, the s e i u which which points out <clears throat> that uh, what happened what happens in reality is not what Roy Beck told us that when that when a uh, a worker shows up to work and is checked through e verify and gets a uh, a, 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 a possible uh, non uh, confirmation back rather than being given ten days to straighten it out he just is not hired or she is just not hired.
1: You know something? I don't see how either side can make that claim because it's probably different depending upon the particular company, and there are tens of thousands of companies. I'm sure that that happens in some companies, and it doesn't happen in others. That is a very sweeping claim. But I guess so my question to the SEIU would be that if, if they were given the 10 days, perhaps as part of a bill, then would they support it?
0: Well, well, when we have an SEIU person on, uh, I think, May 22nd, but uh, I, I would tend to think that that's probably right. I know if, if I was hiring somebody and I was told that if you take this person on, in 10 days they may be gone, I'm not going to spend the, the time and the paperwork to bring them on, to train no. them, to get them going, and then have to go do it again in 10 more days.
1: No, you're not, but you're going to tell them to to get the thing cleared up and then come back. And, uh, and in most cases, I think that Roy Beck claims that it's not a difficult thing to to clear up. It could be done within 24 hours. Maybe there should be something in place as part of a mandatory bill that would make that process easier for someone to do it. Um, yeah, do you know what I mean? It's it's not. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, and no, no, they're not going to hire them until they get it cleared up. I mean, that's, that's, I understand that. I wouldn't expect them to. Well, but they would hire them once they do get it cleared up, and the question is how can that process be made easy?
0: But I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, why would you hire somebody who, who is only a possible hire that you may have to, to rehire later on when you've got another person standing there who doesn't have a problem, you can hire them right away? You as an employer, I, I wouldn't take the chance. I would just say, I'm sorry, but uh, you, you're too much of a question mark. The guy behind you or the woman behind you is ready to go. I'm going to hire that person right now.
1: No, of course. and I, they, You can't hire them until they get it cleared up. But what you can say to them, and maybe there could be some aspect to this that could be handled as part of the law that they have X number of hours or days to clear it up and then come back.
0: And if, assuming there's a job left when right, they come back, because you've already hired somebody for that job, there's not a job left. They just no, I understand out. that. It's yeah.
1: a problem, but it's, a, it's not a big part of it. I think but, that... Well, you, you don't, don't know
0: that. Well, Roy
1: Beck said that the, the system is 96% accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about anecdotal situations that are a problem. But – and even among those situations, I think that probably in more cases than not, the employer gives somebody a break and says, get it cleared up. And to make a sweeping statement saying that they don't, that's not provable, I mean, because you can't know what every single company – does no, no, you
0: can't, but also to make a, a sweeping statement that says you think that most employers give them a break is, is also not provable, not right, and no, it also no. goes against the, uh, just, just common sense. If you're an employer, and I've been an employer, you're not going to take somebody who may be no. a problem later on. You're going to take somebody who's, who's right there, and also 4% as the GAO report pointed out uh, that I cited earlier on that he agreed he knew about, is 770,000 people. So we're not dealing with small numbers here. That's 770,000 people who could have a job, who should have a job, who will be told, sorry, you're not going to work here.
1: No, 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 that's 770,000 people who did not get clearance. It doesn't mean that they're all legal. I mean, probably what percentage of those people probably should not have gotten a job?
0: The uh, GAO re- report that I'm referring to said that uh, 770,000 American citizens or legal workers would lose their jobs as a result of this.
1: And th- is that a projection or is that something? It's a projection
0: that- based on the percentage of accuracy. Uh, of accuracy of the uh, e-verify system. A- as it currently stands, yes.
1: That's, that seems awfully strange because if, if, 90, if, the, if the e-verify system is 92% accurate, which would mean that um seven percent of people who are in the applying in the workforce is seven hundred and seventy thousand people. We're talking about a hundred million people
0: that's that's over the uh over the course of a year, and if you stop and think, uh the private sector created two hundred and sixty thousand jobs last month. If four percent of those jobs were disqualified inaccurately, that would be ten thousand four hundred people. It right, multiply that if, times 12 months, and you've got, you're well over 770,000.
1: Yeah, but of what percentage of those? So you're saying that if 6% of those people were questioned with regard to their 4%. status? 4%. 4%. Yeah. yeah, but probably, a high, again, a high percentage of those who were questioned probably were not legal. My point is at what? No, what, no. The,
0: uh, the, the GAO report said that those 770,000 were legal Americans who would lose their jobs.
1: So then, you know, as I said, Patrick, at the beginning of the talk, there has to be perhaps a part of the mandate that would give someone an opportunity to clear themselves um, swiftly. And I think that maybe the employer who is doing the e-verify test, and it's a computer test, should be able to handle that for them in-house. You know what I mean? It, this is not something that could not be remedied legislatively. You're
0: right. Yeah, I agree. And and the remedy is that if a person does turn up that way, you hold the job open for them. Businesses will complain about that, but that's fair.
1: Right. I mean, I think it's fair. I mean, it's not always fair because there might be some situations where they have to have somebody immediately. Yeah. You know, so in which case that's the way it goes. Somebody can get, nevertheless, get cleared so that the next time they apply for a job, they'll get the job.
0: Yeah. So there's there's no perfect system, but you no. can you can improve it. That's Incidentally, right. the report I'm talking about is Employment Verification. Federal agencies have taken steps to improve E-Verify, but significant challenges remain. It's the GAO, December 2010.
1: Well, you know, either way, it's a good thing that people either get themselves cleared if they're legal aliens or they are denied the job, and uh, there there are situations, I'm sure, where somebody would not get one specific job. I don't think it would be that many. Um, We don't know how many or how few, but either way, if they get themselves cleared, then they'll be ready the next time they apply.
0: Well, you know, Chuck, I think you just hit on something. Yeah. Why wait until you apply for a job? Why can't a person who's looking for a job just type in on the computer, put in the, uh, the name and Social Security number, and get a printout back that says you're cleared or not cleared and take care of that before you go talk exactly. to an employer.
1: No, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean why did we think of that? <laughs> you know, and also, as as I mentioned, I mean, you know, when I'm stopped by a, by a policeman for speeding or whatever, they have a ton of information about me just by running my license through a computer, and they have it right then and there. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I mean, to me, I don't understand why it's so difficult in our computer age to just simply confirm whether a person is a citizen or not.
0: I don't either. It may be that it's the scale you're dealing with, and when you're stopped by a policeman, you're de- generally dealing with your local city's uh, database, which is, you know, in your case, what uh, three. Th-
1: th- no, they're all connected. To, to I think they're all connected to. Uh,
0: yeah, you're right. State,
1: state. Yeah. Database. It's very quick. I mean, a yeah. cop goes in the car. I'm sure. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. I have. <laughs> I, I certainly have too. And, and I also don't agree with Ron Paul and with the Libertarians that this is a national ID. I think that it no. it's reasonable to have, for a lot of reasons, to, that a person should be able to be identified as a citizen, as a legal citizen. There there are situations that come up. We had. To, I think David Rubin talked about this the other day. We have Al Qaeda, you know, and. Uh, uh, you know, Hamas going into Central and South America And crossing the border yeah. That's something that's been reported by the FBI but yeah. We need to know, you know, who is here
0: I agree and, and the other thing we need to know is that This is the end of the hour, we have to take a quick break Alright Okay. Hour two of fairness doctrine. Of, I'm sorry, of fairness radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. It's March 1st, 2002, the day after leap year and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides we are pushing the boundaries of radio we broadcast Monday through Friday 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on cyberstationusa.com blogtalkradio.com and our radio station affiliates cyberstationusa.com is uh, not uh, broadcasting us today we they are Finishing up the upgrade of their system, I've been getting daily reports from the technical crew there, and they should have it ready to go tomorrow. But you can be ready to go today. You can call us at 424-675-6806 for our Blog Talk listeners. Remember, we are heard on terrestrial radio, so we have to follow the FCC rules and don't say anything you uh would not want your mother to hear you say on the radio you can also email us at fairnessradio@gmail.com and i will eliminate the those those words from your emails you can also check our twitter and our facebook feeds and our website after the show look at our website fairnessradio.com. dot com well before we open up for our radio audience who are in a news break right now let me introduce you to my friend and my colleague our co-host chuck morse hi chuck how are you patrick i'm pretty good i'm very good, as a matter of fact. I'm looking forward to uh, a conference on media reform this Saturday and a really long bike ride Sunday. So it's going to be an interesting weekend.
1: Who is trying to reform media? Well, <laughs> everybody. What, what, is their, what is their idea of reform? <laughs> Not to get into detail. Uh <laughs>
0: Uh, it, it's called media for the 99%. Does that tell you everything you need to know? <laughs> I think
1: that tells us definitely what we need to know. Uh
0: but I'm sure there's some place out there there's a uh, a conference on media for the 1% too.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, yeah, it's probably in John Kerry's office. Uh <laughs> not you know, maybe we could book some of these people on our show, Patrick.
0: Um yeah, we could. As a matter of fact, cuz I know a lot of them and uh, I'll be talking to them about that. Um the other thing I'm looking at is that the, the Senate killed the uh, the GOP bill that would allow any employer to deny any kind of insurance coverage to their employees for any sort of made-up morals uh, reason.
1: That went down to the Yeah, peak. I support the, the blunt bill. And I support it because if, I don't like the idea that, that a company or an individual could be able to not um, have to be a part of a mandate because of, of their uh, conscientious objection. I think they should not be able to be part of it for any objection. But I can speak to this personally in that I was, um, when my daughter was born, uh, I took a conscientious objection to her getting eight different different um, immunizations while she was still in the NICU unit. I, and the way I could do that legally in Massachusetts was by saying that I had religious objections, which was not true. I don't really – it's not a matter there's nothing in Judaism that tells me that. It's common sense. But I I didn't like the idea that I would have any kind of a mandatory um, medical modality done, and I think that individuals and companies should have the right to have an objection to these things, whether it be conscientious or otherwise. So, you know, to my way of thinking, this is is a bad thing to have that taken down.
0: Well, uh, you're mixing up a couple of things there, uh, Chuck. Uh, You you were talking about your freedom – as an individual, regardless of morality or, or religion, to be able to determine what kind of inoculations your child gets, uh, what kind of care your child gets in the hospital, and that's up to your individual freedom. The Blount Amendment was attempting to give employers the freedom to dictate What's in the insurance that they're required to give employees? That's totally different than your freedom. It has nothing to do with what what happened to you. And in this in this case, it would give employers the ability to say, Yeah, I don't want to pay for vaccinations. I'll just I'm I'm, I'm morally against that. I don't want to pay for um, um, fixing broken legs because that might I'm morally against that. It would give employers the ability to just to essentially eliminate all. Workplace insurance, regardless of what the law says now, as far as the religious uh, aspect of it is, I know conservatives have been talking about this this uh, is a religious freedom issue it 's not the Constitution says Congress shall make low, no law interfering with the practice of religion. The practice of religion is done in churches it 's not done in uh, private businesses. there is no practice of, of religion involved in private businesses or in insurance or in any other area outside of how you practice your religion. You can practice your religion just fine, even if your employees have full insurance. So we have to take a quick break and uh, bring in our radio announcers and then our, our radio audience, and then we can continue on. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm uh, broadcasting uh here, Well, let's start all over again. I'm sorry. If This is from Cyber Station USA and Blog Talk Radio. It's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with the redoubtable Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. You can be part of this. Email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call us, 424-675-6806. And don't forget our website, fairnessradio.com, and our Twitter feed, that's at FairDoc, and our Facebook page. And for information on Chuck and myself, don't go on to the uh, Fairness Radio website. There's blogs there, pictures, and lots of interesting things. So as I was saying, uh, Chuck, uh, you were mixing up two different things there.
1: Not at all, Patrick. I did not have the freedom to deny my uh, the hospital. Uh, you know, the state law was that uh, the hospital could do this. The only reason that I was able to stop it was because I knew that they were lying about it when they said that to me, and I challenged them on it, and eventually I showed them fine print that uh, made them back off, and I said I have a religious objection, but they don't tell everybody that. Most people did get those injections for their infants, and, and I feel vindicated because... Right at six months after I took my daughter out of the hospital, it turned out that one of these injections was doing irreplaceable nerve damage to children, and they pulled it off the market. So you're not right. It was mandated by the state, and that they, they there was a little clause in there that allowed for a conscientious objection, which the hospital did not tell people about, and the state does not tell people about.
0: Well, well I completely support you in that effort, and I'm uh... Glad that you did that, and uh, uh, proud of you for doing that too. And more people should know about that. But there is a distinction. You're talking about an individual parent's right. The law was about insurance coverage by I'm employers. are the two separate things.
1: I'm talking about the company, the the hospital, and I think employers and I think companies have a right to decide what they want to have in their health insurance plans. Also, that's not none of the state's business. It's between the the company and their employees. You know, I mean, other than catastrophic health. Uh, you know coverage or these other things should not be mandated by the government and it's all going to be heard anyways by the supreme court sometime this summer so the whole issue may be moot, or may not <laughs> exactly but the point is that that's the very heart of the objection here that companies and individuals should not be forced to have mandated coverages or or modalities if they don't want them they shouldn't be forced to pay for them other than as i said you can make a case for catastrophic illness so I think that it's a very a very bad development, and I don't think that this kind of shrill accusations that companies aren't going to cover broken arms and that stuff—that's just a lot of you know kind of a, a agitprop, really. You know, uh, I,
0: I used to think that until I've watched the behavior of corporations. But again, really? you're, you're talking you about a corporation uh, that doesn't cover a broken uh, up. Uh, uh, co- Corporations will do whatever they can to increase the bottom line. That's yeah, what they're right. legally set up for. That's what that, that's what they do. And if they can get out of coverage, that they will. And we've seen them do that. Well, that's and and I as said far as Trump... you're still interrupting me, Chuck, I didn't no, interrupt no, 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 you. No, no, uh, as, uh, to... as far as uh, the, the similarity here, you're now arguing against the, the federal law, which was passed three years ago by Congress and signed by the President that requires insurance comp- that requires employees to offer insurance. Now you may not like that law, and I know you don't. But that's a different issue than the Blunt Amendment. The Blood Amendment was attempting to give uh, companies and, and uh, employers the ability to say they have a moral objection to whatever they wanted to and just remove it from that law. That's a different issue, and that's not no, it, what's it, going to be it, in front whether, of the Supreme Court. Whether
1: whether the objection be moral, ethical, practical, whatever. Uh, And, by the way, we know unions have been exempted from that law, and we know that Muslims have been exempted, and we know the companies in the San Francisco area have been
0: exempted. And other places, actually over 600 companies nationwide.
1: Right, and this simply says that any company should have the right to decide that they want to be exempted from any mandatory laws. Regarding what they have to cover. And I support that, not just, I support it not put it for conscientious reasons, I support it for freedom reasons. Okay. It isn't a, this isn't a religious issue. I think that there are people who want to phrase it that way, probably on both sides. No, not on it both sides. It has to do with, yeah, yes, on no, both no, sides. No, I've heard no. it on both sides. I'm watching a lot of MSNBC and I've no. heard this droning day after day on, on that side. It is more to do with civil liberties. It has to do with the right of an individual or a company to decide what and what they, what they will and will not pay for and do.
0: Well, that's the case that's going before the court, and, and right. I understand your objection to that. That is not the case that the Blood Amendment was talking about. That was a totally separate issue. That was an attempt to, to inject religion and morality into higher in, into inheritance, and, and, and which which uh, apparently the Senate didn't go along with, and I think there's no place for that, and it's a phony issue, as, as, as what the right is trying to bring up in order to generate uh, enthusiasm among their base. It has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with the practice of religion. That's not what the Constitution says. They're making it up. The yeah, other issue always. is going before the Supreme Court, and we'll see how that works. Yeah,
1: there's always a place in a free society for conscientious objectors, whether they're motivated by any particular religion or not. And this is a conscientious objection issue. Nope. I support conscientious objection, and I support the right of people and companies to state those, those positions and take them as long as they're not violating the actual letter of the Constitution, and I don't think there's anything in the Constitution that says that a company has to buy insurance.
0: No there's not but there is a there is a federal law that says that, and I don't agree that there's a place in business for conscientious objections. If you want to go into business, you follow business laws. If you have a conscientious objection, you do what the Amish do and you don't go into business that's a That's a personal decision you make but if you're going to go into business, you have to follow the law of course. you don't you don't get you don't get an exemption because you make up something or even or even if it's the sincere if you that's a that's a that's a decision you make. If you go into business, you follow the law,
1: period. That's right, Patrick, and that's why the Blunt Amendment was trying to make a law that would allow businesses to have the freedom to have a conscientious objection, and I support that. But you're right. Right now, they have to do it, and I think it's very chilling.
0: Well. I think it's it's – I'm enthusiastic about oh. it. I'm really glad. <laughs> but this is why we have this show, right? <laughs> yep. A,
1: I, I fall on the side of conscientious objection. Okay.
0: All right. Uh, we'll, well, we'll do that. Uh, when
1: is Tamara Piety coming on? Uh,
0: in about a minute and a half, um, and we'll, we'll call her, and she's going to talk about uh, cor- corporations and the First Amendment.
1: Did you have a chance to read the book?
0: Yes, I did. Did you? No. I mean, I've, I have a lot of
1: books on my desk, and I, I was busy with the plot against the president. And I like this other business book. I just, I, I kind of glanced at it. It's a little ponderous. I just, uh, yeah, I couldn't quite get myself.
0: It is. It, 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 well, it. I wouldn't say it's ponderous. I would say that it was written for attorneys.
1: Well, <laughs> and it, and it's, and it's rather. It's a book that probably could have been distilled down to just a couple of. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 a lot. There's a lot in there that's that's uh, filler. Um, and with due respect, and and but I have an article about it, so I, I think I have enough information. Here.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we take a break and and see if we can uh, uh, find her in her office? Okay. Sure. us radio with Chuck and Patrick Um uh, in, in a few minutes we're going to be joined by Tamara uh, Piety that's uh, Dr T- Tamara Piety who's a law law professor and we're going to talk about her book on the first amendment and uh, we're just waiting for her to uh, enter the electronic green room uh, we have an electronic green room here so hold on and uh, don't forget don't forget you can uh, be part of this this show you can email us at Fairness radio at com. You can call in at the number on your screen there. <clears throat> and uh, for those of you who are listening on our terrestrial radio stations uh, and also on Blog Talk Radio, remember we have to follow the FCC code, so don't say any words you wouldn't want your mother to hear you say on the radio. Well, yesterday a U.S. district judge blocked the government's requirement that cigarette makers put pictures of diseased lungs on packs of cigarettes as a way to counter the advertising for smoking. The court said it violated corporations' free speech rights, its First Amendment rights. Free speech rights? Well, when do artificial legal entities that have no corporal existence have free speech rights? Apparently, they think they have more than free speech rights than real humans do, because yesterday, Shell Oil sued a number of environmental organizations asking the court to prevent them in the future from exercising their constitutional rights to to use the courts by suing Shell over development of oil in the Chukchi Sea. Shell asserted that its right to drill chumped the citizens' right to sue. So what's going on here? Are corporations people? Do they have free speech rights? Are their rights greater than the rights of ordinary humans? And what does Citizens United decision have to say about this? Well, we are joined today by Professor Tamara Piety, Associate Dean and Professor of the University of Tulsa College of Law and author of a new book, Brandishing the First Amendment. Professor Piety takes a strong stand, and we will invite a guest with another view to join us next week. Professor Piety, welcome to Fairness Radio.
2: I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Uh,
0: Professor Piety, uh, first of all, can we just call it, uh, Tamara?
2: Tamara, yes. Uh-huh.
0: Tamara, uh, Tamara sure. you, you write that over the past two decades, corporations have used strategic litigation to essentially rewrite the First Amendment so that it covers their speech, although that's not what the founders intended. Um, How do they do it, and what is strategic litigation?
2: Well, um, you know, a lot of groups use strategic litigation, and it's just, you know, bringing lawsuits with, with a... A plaintiff. I mean, this was a tactic used, and I think is continued to be used in uh, the civil rights arena. Um, the the book is basically about how this one of these types of cases um, uh, in 1976 um, created something that's known as the uh, commercial speech doctrine, and and employed the rhetoric of of equal rights and equality and how over time that has turned the First Amendment into something that it arguably wasn't intended to serve as, which is a sort of an all-purpose weapon against governmental uh, regulation of all kinds, Um, uh, more as a weapon than as a protection against governmental regulation, and has really uh, created this image of the corporation as a uh, as a participant in the political process in a way that I think is not warranted. So um, there are um, the the book talks about the brandishing the First Amendment is the title, and it it traces the evolution of this commercial speech doctrine, and then what, for lack of a better term, I'll call the corporate political speech doctrine, both of the, which were created in the late seventies. Prior to that, there was no protection for commercial speech, advertising, marketing, or for corporate political participation. Uh, But with the creation of these doctrines, we began sort of seamlessly slipping into um, into this mindset where we think of the corporation as a participant in the political process in a way that we had not before. And I think... What that has um, th- what that has resulted in is a is a situation where it, it kind of blurs the political lines of of traditional liberal thought and traditional conservative thought about what the right resolution is of these. Um, you mentioned a couple of cases, but there were uh, some more. Interesting ones are the cases brought against the bond rating agency, Moody's and other agencies are in the whole mortgage crisis for their AAA ratings, and First Amendment de- defenses were raised in those cases as well.
0: When you say First Amendment defenses were raised, do you mean that the, the corporations involved, the banks involved, asserted that uh, the bond rating agency didn't have the right to rate them?
2: No, that the bond ratings were couldn't they couldn't be held liable for um, ratings that were say triple A when it turned out that the investments were no good because that the because the ratings were opinions um, and so they were they had a freedom to express their opinions.
0: Um, so they're saying they, they had the, the the right to to advertise these as triple A even though they knew they weren't.
2: Well, you know, this is the question about whether or not they knew they weren't, but um, I think probably their defense was that they, in their best judgment at the time, they were, and the, and there were plaintiffs who wanted to say, no, you knew better or should have known. Um, but the, that's one of the things that happens with the First Amendment, a really strong First Amendment application is that questionable or difficult factual cases get resolved in favor of, um, of eliminating the lawsuit. So, for instance, a few years ago when Nike um, was under some attack about its labor practices, um, a, a consumer protection advocate sort of filed a lawsuit in California saying a lot of the things that they ha- Nike had said in defense of its labor practices were false. And that not only were they false, but they constituted fraud and deceptive practices. And Nike filed a, something that's called a demur, which is basically a legal term that says you that everything you say may, might be true, but it doesn't provide you with a cause of action. You can't sue for that. And that's a kind of radical statement that fraud is something you can't sue for. Now,
0: this was that's, the Caskey case, right?
2: Right, the Nike v. Kasky case. And that was, um, I wrote an article about that, you know, basically saying that what Nike was asking for was a constitutional right to lie, to say that um, we can say whatever we like about our, our labor practices and you can't sue us if it turns out they were false and they were knowingly false. Well, this brings um, up the,
0: the, the basic question is, do corporations have free speech rights the same way people do?
2: Well, under the current doctrine, it seems as if they do. Um, Whether or not they ought to is another question. Um, I think this idea that corporations are sort of some kind of disfavored minority, which is reflected in the Citizens United decision, and that they're entitled to the protection of the courts against governmental regulation, is really... Something you know is, is a notion that arose out of the civil rights movement. When you were talking about a a minority who didn't have representation in the legislature, who were seeking protection from the courts, where they could not expect to get protection from from you know majority who was or which was trying to uh, impose impress, uh, oppressive. Rules or impressive oppressive laws on that minority, and so the court's intervention protected that sort of disfavored minority from from the tyranny of the majority, if you will, but mm-hmm. that can't be said of corporations who have a lot of influence in the legislature you they know they have, have more lobbying than individual people. yeah, a lot more than individual people, so when you add to that, the court's sort of counter majoritarian power to to invalidate. Laws that say we may have asked our representatives to enact for us—it's—it's quite—it's um, quite a different thing than well, um, sort of a lunch counter sit-in kind of yeah, <laughs> protest.
0: Yeah, well, you—you brought up Citizens United, and, and I thought Citizens mm-hmm. United was about political speech. Uh, so, is Citizens it United is. bring a new dimension to uh, corporate attempts to evade uh, regulation?
2: Yes, it does actually and and this is as i say the- the commercial speech doctrine and the corporate political speech doctrine were born around the same time. Commercial speech protection for advertising was a very limited exception and on or engrafted on on uh the first Amendment. For truthful advertising. So it was only truthful. It wasn't anything you wanted to say. If it was misleading, it wasn't protected. But two years after that, the court was presented with a political speech case, and it's my contention that it was the Virginia Pharmacy decision that actually sort of rhetorically and in other ways kind of put the court's mindset into a place where it seemed that it was appropriate to extend the same sort of right to a corporation to poli- to contribute to the political process. And over time, those two areas merged. And what I said about in the book, and, and I've said subsequently about Citizens United, is that Citizens United, strong rhetoric about corporate political participation as if it was a citizen, as if it was a a speaker the same way a human being was, was likely to have really bad influence on the commercial speech doctrine because it was likely to bleed over into that. And if you apply that standard to the regulation of marketing and commercial speech, you have a really high standard that almost nothing, no regulation or much regulation, much of it which we've thought for decades is very unproblematic, is going to survive. And so, indeed, so you're we had a case that, just la- I'm
0: that, sorry? That, that So you're saying that corporate lawyers could use the, uh, Citizens United to argue that there should be essentially no effective regulation of anything cor- corporations say that would allow them to lie about their products, about who they are, about their stock prices, whatever they want, and that would be free speech. That, that's the Absol- conclusion you're ab- reaching to?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, there was a decision, a really important decision that kind of went under the radar just this, this past summer. Uh, Sorrel versus IMS, that essentially kind of flowered, represented the flowering of that problem, and I think said just that, although it didn't go so far as to say it explicitly. It was a little different than Citizens United, but it used that same rhetoric of disfavored speakers, and we... It was a a case involving the sale of private physician prescription records to data mining companies who used that then to give to – sold it back after they analyzed it, sold it back to pharmaceutical companies to use in their marketing to doctors. The state of Vermont thought that this this meant that more brand-name drugs would be sold over generics and it would increase medical reimbursement costs. Doctors hated it because they felt, or many doctors hated it because they thought it was an invasion of their privacy. They lobbied the state legislature to pass these laws, and the court struck it down, a statute that that prohibited the sale for marketing, saying that this singling out of marketing was content discrimination and discriminatory, and it couldn't survive the First Amendment. Well, you know, that basically says that anything that, any time you attempt to regulate marketing, you are discriminating, and that means that it's going to not survive the First Amendment. And I think if you can't regulate commercial speech, you can't regulate commerce.
0: Which would, of course, conflict with the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Well, the, the basic qu- <laughs> the basic question we get down to here is how does the how does the court <clears throat> give rights to a legal fiction? that has no body, it has no mind, it has no soul. It's a legal fiction. It doesn't exist. No
2: body to kick, no soul to damn, as, right. the,
0: as the old quote goes,
2: yes. Um, well, I mean, we have, since Marbury versus Madison, given the the Supreme Court the power to declare matters of constitutional law, and that includes invalidate laws. Um, so that's how, how they do it. Um, I think part of the problem... You know, maybe you need to be a sociologist to explain all of the reasons why it's it seems, um, seems like a natural extension. But um, corporations were declared persons for purposes of the 14th Amendment back in the late 1880s. And that declaration was not reasoned. There was no real explanation. Um, this is the somewhat infamous Santa Clara Railroad case. Right. And... Um, since that time, a lot of these extensions have been really under theorized You might say they haven't they haven't given a lot of explanation and I think the most recent decisions, like Citizens United and the Sorel case i mentioned um are a couple of different versions of of and I hate the term judicial activism but in in the sense but in the citizens United case, the court Affirmatively reached out to decide something that the parties said wasn't on the table, which is usually sort of a no-no, um, and and overruled some precedent, Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, that wasn't very old; it was only about ten years old. Sorrell was a different approach. Sorrell, the, the court, you know, preserved the existing commercial speech test. It seems as if. They hadn't done anything radical, but the way this decision was written actually is very radical, and it it makes kind of a hash of the commercial speech doctrine, and I think suggests (coughs) that there is this argument going forward that any attempt to regulate, to segregate a different approach for marketing speech is one that's going to be, at least susceptible. Now we don't know if it's going to win, but it might be susceptible to a challenge that it's discriminatory, and well, this, this rhetoric of discrimination is really powerful.
0: Uh, I want to uh, to uh, introduce you to my my co-host uh, Chuck Morris. Chuck, thank Hi. you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Tamara.
2: Oh, I'm um, I'm really excited about being here. Nice to nice to talk to you.
1: Great. You know, it, it seems to me that what you're 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 saying, and by the way, I think we all support you know regulation of um businesses speech when it comes to things like the pornography industry for example uh and uh, you know cigarettes marketed to children i mean this sort of thing you know society has an interest in making sure that various industries are regulated in a way to protect society from from you know from them and especially adult type industries but what you seem to be suggesting is that um there is a trend, a legal trend afoot, which would legally allow a company to lie. Which is, of course, I mean that's amazing to me. I mean, if you if you're engaging consciously and knowingly in falsely presenting yourself to the public and offering a, a good or a service to the public, then why would would that company not be liable for that if um, if it was found that they were not engaging in truth in advertising?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. Here's the problem. Um, Experts, a lot of experts that you talk to will say, oh, Professor Piety is just an alarmist. There's no problem. This preserves the right of the government to regulate fraud. But the standard that is being used, the strict scrutiny, is something that's called, often referred to by a lot of lawyers, as strict in theory, fatal in fact. What that means is that almost nothing survives it. And so, um this is this is um your your first comments, I think, you know, particularly are are going to be really those are going to be very appealing to both conservative and liberal or progressive. And one of the things that's really interesting about this commercial speech, corporate speech question is how dramatically those who identify as conservative have changed in the course of the development of the doctrine, because the major dissenter in the Virginia Pharmacy and Bellotti cases which created these doctrines was that noted liberal, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Mm-hmm. And he predicted that, that that the court was going to lose its way here on this and that it wouldn't be able to, it would be going down a slippery slope that would essentially undo the New Deal, that that a lot of sort of, Appropriate regulations, particularly in the vice area that you identified, would be unconstitutional under this. And it's taken a few decades, you know, to, for it to materialize. But that seems to be what we're where, where we are.
1: Well, I, mean, I would think that, um, you know, conservatives and liberals can come together and agree that um, certain industries have to be regulated with regard to the way they present themselves to the public because of health issues and moral issues but uh, the 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 thing that's stunning to me is this idea that um a company can engage in a commercial in a consumer fraud if you will then and get away with that It seems to me that we have a we have a system in place where if if somebody lies then they can be prosecuted for that that's called libel it's called slander now there are other laws there's long settled law that can address that problem i mean if uh so you know, I, I don't know. So it's quite an amazing development, and if if this is what's what's going on, I, I entirely agree with you. Uh, individuals and companies should not be able to be immune publicly if they're engaging in libel and slander. But I want to ask well, you about the business of the uh, corporation as people. I mean, I have always believed that this was somewhat of an urban myth that the <laughs> Supreme Court did not declare a corporation. As a person, there was a footnote in a dissenting opinion in in um, in the case that you mentioned that mentioned this that the corporation is a person, but it was never something that actually became a part of our law, did it?
2: Yes, it did. Although it wasn't, I don't think it was a footnote in a dissent. I think what it was was a headnote, which is a sort of a editorial comment by the reporter. Um, so it was even less effective than a footnote in a dissent, but then subsequent decisions after Santa Clara reinforced this. Now, it is is also the case that the court never, and in fact, up until this day, a recent case at and um I think, um, reinf- uh, reiterated this principle that just because it's a person for some legal purposes doesn't mean it's a person for every purpose to the same extent as a human being, and the 18T right. case involved privacy and the court rejected the idea that a corporation has the same privacy interests as a as a human being. So, there's still a lot of blurry lines, but I want to go back to your the falsity question because there is a New York Times versus Sullivan case that involved the libel of public figures and one of the things that Justice Brennan said in that opinion that is being used now is that the that when talking about uh, public figures, you need to have the First Amendment needs to offer a certain amount of breathing room, that was the phrase to for claims of falsity in order not to unduly chill or squash speech and this, is, this argument was re- resurrected in the Stolen Valor um, uh, case recently, the argument about the guy in California I think who was claiming to be a veteran and a Purple Heart winner or something like that um, the idea that well, we have to protect, the First Amendment has to protect some right to lie. You might agree with that proposition with respect to political speech or just vigorous and unfettered debate in, in on matters of, I don't know, public, public concern. But I think we would all be a little bit more uncomfortable with this idea of having to have breathing room for false statements in the commercial context. We don't well, really want...
1: I mean, well, I, I, I mean, don't think anybody has a right to lie in a way that would any in any way adversely affect people, especially when you have public entities, whether they be uh, political figures or whether they be commercial figures. You know, I mean, they, they do it, but but if somebody if they do it in a way that um, that it, it adversely adversely affects someone, then then they should be held. But I want to ask you uh, to go back to this issue of the... uh, Real quick, let me do
0: a station ID, and then we'll keep going. Go ahead. Uh, You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network and uh, Cyber Station USA Network and our... Radio Affiliates, we are talking about corporate personhood and corporate speech. We're discussing the book Brandishing the First Amendment by Professor uh, Piety, and uh, we're getting into uh, this pretty deeply. Don't forget, you can be part of this. You can email us at uh, fairnessradio at gmail.com. Continue on, Chuck. Sorry.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Um, I understand the argument of the corporation as a person, even though, as you said, it's never been actually – Declared by the Supreme Court, and that uh, you, you know this isn't something that's that's uh, formal, but uh, and that's in certain areas, and that is that uh, well, it, it's formal
2: to... with respect to some areas and not others. Yeah.
1: Okay, but it's never been quite put the way that it's been portrayed. I mean, there hasn't been a Supreme Court decision that has declared corporations as people. But uh, well, I
2: think what people are reacting to in Citizens United is that the rhetoric of the opinion act it it sounds as if what they're talking about uh is a person this idea of invidious discrimination against disfavored speakers that invokes, that invokes this idea of, of human um human rights and human participation in a way that i think makes people um that's that's i think invoking the. right song. So- and it you, sounds it you're absolutely like that. right they haven't yeah. said that this is that they're the same as humans so okay
1: that's but, but to to talk to get to the issue of whether or not right there is a person aspect to a corporation, it seems to me that there is, uh, in in terms of that we have a right under the First Amendment to assemble and that a corporation or a union or a political organization or an interest of any sort is an assemblage of people and that as such they have a right to uh, speak collectively, even though I hate that word. (laughs) <laughs> in other words, they can, you know, they, they, if they have an internal process in which they decide that they want to take a position on something, whether it be political, commercial, personal, whatever, then, then they have a right to do that, and that that's part of our right to assemble. So in that sense, a corporation or a union or a, a special interest group it has the same right as a person to express an opinion.
2: Well, here is where I think there's a difference, because I think, yes, the the First Amendment also protects the right to assemble, and that includes forming groups and forming groups for the right to speak. And, and we can segregate out here to media and press as a sort of distinctive type of corporation. But right. it is not invidious discrimination to discriminate or to differentiate to Use a better word, I think between different types of corporations, so a corporation that is organized for profit is a different uh animal or a different creature, a different sort of fiction than a want, than a church than a union than a um a um, a non profit organization than an organization like the Sierra Club or Cato Institute or any number of organizations that are organized for the purpose of political participation as distinct from organized for the purpose of, of selling a product or service. And right. no,
1: clearly you're, you're right, and I support the right of corporations to make as much profit as they can. But where the, regu- where the public interest comes into it with regard to limiting the speech of a corporation, so to speak, It would be the same in that if they're involved in speech that is either lying or misrepresenting themselves in such a way that it could damage a person and they could make that case legally, or they're involved in an activity that the public wants to regulate, such as pornography or something else, then the public has an interest in regulating those specific aspects of speech. But to get into a statement that because a corporation makes a profit, that they should not be able to be treated with the same rights as any other entity with regard to making public statements to me that that's that's um, runs against the 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 spirit of the first amendment and it's in a sense a gag order on uh, on the right of people to advocate for themselves and to make a profit
2: well see i don't i don't think that it's a in any way a, a gag order on the right to engage in a business it's i think the question is whether or not engage a corporation that's organized for profit And there's nothing awful or in, i i certainly support um businesses and and think that it's a great idea for businesses to make a, uh you know a profit and so forth but that is not they do not exist to have opinions and there is a their opinion is whatever will sell the product is what we will say and right. sometimes that's not that is really not the same thing. It's sort of like work for hire, right? If a lawyer is hired to, to advocate for a client, nobody thinks that what they say full on behalf of the client in advocacy is their personal opinion, and their personal opinion might be something else entirely. But... The difference between, say, a for-profit corporation or, say, an advocacy organization or a church or a, or even a, um, a union is that many of these organizations are representative or you can you can sort of know what the positions are. And if you don't want to support them anymore, you can take your money out. You can exit from that organization. But a lot of people are investors in corporations that really don't have any they don't have any say or vote or input into what sorts of speech that the corporation supports and it's not organized for them to speak it's organized to make a profit and we don't those of us who are not shareholders in that corporation don't have any vote in the sort of board of directors say at Exxon or um you know Unilever and so if they say stuff that is not consistent with the things that we like it's both Uh, we have no input into their decision making process and even their own shareholders don't have very much input into their decision making process. And I I would say that the organization doesn't, as an organization, have an independent right. Any rights it has flow from its human constituency, its human uh, organizers or, or, or participants and the, it's the structure of a corporation that makes it really not a very good device for for being an independent right holder because uh, the people Tama, who are
0: yeah, d don't most corporations um, uh, restrict and restrain the speech of their employees so their employees uh, aren't free to speak.
2: Oh, absolutely. This is and they're often um, you know uh given the right to, legal right to say fire people at will for any kind of reason including bad reasons and and you know this goes back to something i think chuck said or i i don't maybe not sure who said it but about lies and and providing legal restitution for lies there's lots of instances in the in life where we do not provide a legal remedy for a lie and it might be that we should for instance, if somebody lies to someone about their intention to marry or um you know uh whether or not they 're dating somebody else, you know this is something that in general, the law has not provided any remedy for and so and Judge Kaczynski, I think, in the stolen Fowler Valor- oh, case goes through a whole laundry list of lies in ordinary life for which there's no remedy. And this was basically the theory that Nike used in the Nike v. case, that, yeah, that's, it, it might be false, but there's no remedy for this. This is that that kind of lie.
1: Well, I mean, and, first of all, it's interesting that you'd mentioned the business of lying about marrying someone. There used to be laws against that, right? Yeah, used to. I mean, Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, yeah, we talked about that with Judith Reisman. Oh, right. Those, those uh-huh. laws have been mainly thrown out, but uh, have, I think yeah. that the the litmus test would be whether or not if a corporation lies, that if that lie damages people and they can demonstrate that. I I would think the same thing might be true of any situation where somebody lies. But as far as corporate employees of corporation being told they can't say stuff, I mean, look, when I worked for Clear Channel, I had to sign an agreement saying that I would not discuss aspects of the corporation as long as I worked there because it was proprietary. I mean, there were reasons right. for that. You know, I mean, this is the corporation, in a sense, has, you know, intellectual property. They've got intellectual property. Right. So, I mean, that, that's, is not, not, a that's not an illegitimate thing.
0: Well, I didn't say it Well, unless, I, I just don't want know. to point out that, that the, the employees of a company do not have free speech. So you can't decide company, you can't say a company corporation. has free speech because employees do. They don't. Well, when it comes
1: to the business of the corporation and they're voluntarily there, they can leave. And if they sign like a morals clause like they used to do in Hollywood, something that's gone away
0: also. But, But it's not a basis for free speech.
1: No, but it's a basis for voluntarily working for a corporation and entering into a contract with them but that says is, that is, as long as I'm here, I'm not going to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Tamara, maybe I'm
0: this not This is a little bit like it.
2: the uh, Anatole France quote about the rich and the poor are equally forbidden about sleeping under bridges, but um, I would say that intellectual property is a great example because I think many organizations' commitments to free speech end at the door of the intellectual property rights and, and will call something proprietary and, and keep that information from the public in ways that are really detrimental to the public um, and could be terribly harmful, and so I, I think agree. what that reveals is, is this is about property.
1: Well, I mean, look, I agree. If they're withholding something to the public that's detrimental to them, isn't that why we have a, an attorney general and you know, and we have invest, we have a Congress that can investigate those sorts of things? That is a problem. But, yeah. you know, if they go to tell an employee that they can't discuss, you can't tell a Macy's employee that they can go to Gimbel's and tell the secrets of Macy's you know, to use a legal maxim.
0: Well, nobody's arguing about that, Chuck, but what we're saying is that that because employees of a corporation do not have free speech within that corporation, the corporation cannot say that it's protected by the First Amendment because that's protecting the free speech of its employees because its employees don't have free speech while they're employees. I
1: I I think that you're using the term free speech a little broadly, they have well, I, think, I think They just are. Pro- they're, they're just prohibited from discussing certain things that are proprietary to that corporation and its image. Uh, and in an
0: at-will contract, At, that's not the case. Isn't that true, to, Tamara?
2: I, I didn't hear what.
0: Yeah, so in what is an is at-will that? contract, they can be fired for anything they say. Well, anybody yes, can be fired anything, yes, including including bad
2: but reasons like we don't like the kinds of, we don't like the bumper sticker on your car. But one of the things I need to just like interject here is like, um, it's really. The idea that the employees don't have in private corporations um, freedom of expression does is is correct, but part of the reason it's correct, and the First Amendment has no application, is because the First Amendment is termed is phrased in terms of an injunction against government, so it's it's not a say the European Convention on Human Rights protects freedom of expression more generally, but the First Amendment is. Is you know Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of expression. So this is a real negative statement. It's a statement that says you know the government is restrained, not private entities. Right. And And it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of, of of observation about how much private power private entities have over our lives, so that they can um, suppress a lot of our speech, a lot of our expression, and the government's. Pretty powerless to do anything about that, or has has interpreted its role as powerless to do anything about that, and um, and so our, perhaps that reflects some some ambivalence about our real commitment to freedom of expression everywhere.
1: No, I mean I totally disagree. I think that we, we it should be a negative power that the government that uh, inherently in 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 limiting the government's um, powers. You know we, we have. Free speech, but uh, could you give an example of where a corporation is limiting uh, free speech in such a way that doesn't involve some government coerc- uh, government collusion? Um,
2: I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Government, in other words, I, I know
1: what you mean when you say that corporations have can limit uh, speech in a sense in the private sector, uh, but I think that when they do that, they're doing it under the guise of having. The government uh, passing regulations that let them do it. They can't just do it on their own. Yeah, they can. How so? No, they,
2: no, they can. <laughs> um, I, there's there's all kinds of common law. The the employment at will doctrine, in many cases, it's been enshrined into an actual statute. But it's it's a it's just a it's a common law rule that is permits a company to fire people for any reason at no, all. No, 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 that's not what I mean.
1: And they should have the right to fire someone, but I'm talking about a corporation limiting the free speech of, uh, of, of general society. I'm not talking about their own company. Oh. I, I don't um, think well, that...
0: In what way? you like talking about slap suits?
1: Well, that's something that's a problem. I mean, they're brought up against conservatives all the time. And I mean mostly
0: against environmentalists.
1: No, no, there's a big, big case. I thought Jim DeMint wrote a, wrote a book about this uh, uh, that, uh, that to silence conservative opinion and religious opinion. With it of that. not not so much the slapsuit, but the threat of slapsuits has been very, very chilling and I think that it's something where you know, this there's a separate topic. What I mean is that a company certainly has a right to Hire and fire people as long as they're not uh, you know, violating laws you know, on racial discrimination, of course, but it, on behavior. And I would hope that we'd support that. My question is Does a corporation or a company have the right to, have the ability to somehow limit the free speech of you and I, you know, of the average citizen who doesn't have anything to do with that company?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean this is that's a really broad question, but I would say, um uh there's some evidence that they do sometimes. Um the one case that I talk about in my um in my book is a, not a US case, but it it's general sort of principle. There were some um activists in some a small kind of splinter group called London Greenpeace that objected to McDonalds labor practices, their Uh, treatment of animals, their disposal of waste, and a number of other things. And McDonald's apparently infiltrated the group and then brought libel suits against the group for some pamphlets that they were distributing saying that that the pamphlets contained untrue information. And none of these people were wealthy people. Most of them uh, settled because the threat of a lawsuit was so intimidating and chilling, to use First Amendment right. language, and uh, but a couple of them persisted and they won the libel suit, but then the, the McDonald's did, but then they um, the defendants actually won in the European Court of Justice uh, an argument that they should have been prece- uh, provided with um, assistance of counsel because of the sort of magnitude of the case. It was the longest running case, I think, in English history at that point, and that um, that was a pretty notorious case. I think there was actually a movie made it about that. But mm-hmm. the protection of intellectual property and yeah. of um, of uh, reputation, uh, of like veggie uh, libel and so forth, the kinds of things that were done uh, when Oprah had uh, the segment on yeah. about mad cow disease, that can that can have a chilling effect on ordinary citizens' expression if it runs afoul, or the company thinks it runs afoul of of you know, their image or of the, of the image of the product or of the company. Um, so well, I, I guess, look, th- I would, I would agree with the of?
1: I would agree with the defendant in that one. If, if McDonald's in fact was falsely portraying themselves to the public, then, um, then they should have, they should have lost.
2: Well, no. I guess under English libel law, there were some things that the defendant said that were not, not true. true. There were some things that were true and some things that were not true. And so, at the end of the day, there was there were some supportable libel claims. I think the UK has a very strict libel law and, and sort of uh, disparagement law. But um, but similar kinds of lawsuits have been brought. Um, as I say, the the Oprah. Chase with. Right. with uh, well, I think uh, in the case Keesh. of Oprah,
1: I, I would imagine that if someone is going to take on a corporation, they had better make sure that they uh, have yeah, two acts together, you know, and they better make sure that uh, it's fairly airtight in terms of what their what the accusation is. And in the broader sense, it was successful because it forced McDonald's right. to report ways. And because sorry. of the bad public exposure, McDonald's had to uh, improve their. Um, their practices uh, they they don't want their their reputation hurt and uh i think they responded to it
0: well we're going to have to yeah, uh, re- hold it right there because we are in our uh, just about out of time i want to say uh okay. thank you very much, so much uh tomra for for being with us uh today very interesting thank yeah, you for having fa- me this is fascinating very good
2: it is a it's a <laughs> fascinating topic yes thank you
1: okay uh, take care
0: professor uh, tomra Piety of the university of tulsa college of um of law and the book is brandishing the first amendment it's available at amazon.com and also from the university of michigan press uh... we are about out of time for today in fact that's it for today tomorrow is music friday and we have the fresh new talent Lindsay ray from los angeles you're going to love this woman she's going to make you feel so light and bright and airy and of course jeffrey lean joins us from well somewhere in the world we're never quite sure where but he's always fun <laughs> and he's always uh... informative You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. And don't forget our website, fairnessradio.com, for blogs and photos and petitions. And sign up on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And I want to say goodnight, everybody, Good and goodnight, night, everybody. Chuck. Talk to you tomorrow.
3: Yep.